Just before we jump into the episode, we have some very exciting news to announce. One of our frequent collaborators, Take Me Outside, will be taking over this podcast. We still have a couple more episodes to publish before the transition is complete. And to keep things nice and simple, you will still find the show in the same places as usual, as well as on the Take Me Outside website. Testing, testing. Hey, I'm Ian. And I'm Sophia. And welcome to Talking with Green Teachers. This is the Environmental Education Podcast, where we discuss recent developments, big ideas, and creative approaches to teaching green. In this episode... And so the piece we really were honing in on is that empathy is reciprocal. It's something that is exchanged, that at, at different points in our life, we need to receive it. At other times, we're really primed to offer it. And so the model, I think the best way to explain it is through the visual because it really is an attempt at tying all of these pieces together is kind of along the top, there's the cycle of the moon to represent that. What does empathy look like in young children? How can we nurture it? When do we just need to step back and let children sort through the complexities of the natural world? Claire Underwood recently participated in a community of practice centered on using a two-worlds approach to develop an empathy model for young children. This work was rooted in Natural Curiosity's four-branch framework of children's environmental inquiry, informed by indigenous perspectives. Claire joined Ian to share the findings from the community of practice, as well as stories from educators who have implemented the empathy model in their teaching. Empathy is, you could argue, one of the most fascinating emotions. It's incredibly important. We are going to be focusing mainly on empathy in young children and specifically children like 10 and under or above or below that. Yes. Yes. So my work focuses on early childhood. So I'm really looking at three to five year olds okay. in particular, but can talk more broadly about empathy in childhood. That time is really rich because their empathy is developing. It's a time when we can really support the natural unfolding and the natural capacity that all of our brains are hardwired for. This is a really critical window in early childhood to support empathy. So that's part of why my work focuses on that. So how does it present for those young children, the three to five-year-olds, like for an educator, for somebody who's working with really young children, what does that empathy development look like? Absolutely. I think this is such an important perspective to have when working with young children is to be intentional and in thinking about what is developmentally appropriate for how these capacities and skills are developing and onboarding. And part of early childhood is that children are very self-centered and that really is not a bad thing. That's very developmentally appropriate. And so when we can ground in that understanding and not see that as a bad thing, but as something that's part of their natural development, I think that has been really helpful to the teachers that I work with. So we think about what empathy 
looks like for very young children, it often presents as curiosity and questions of, especially in nature, wondering about these animals that we've been learning about and encountering on our hikes and in our time in the forest, especially when the seasons change. How are the deer surviving winter? Are they warm? Do they have something to eat? These are questions that children are asking. They're wondering about the birds. So that's one way that children's empathy manifests is through curiosity and questions. Um, Another way that's very in line with their developmental process is that it's often sharing their own experience. So a friend might get a little sliver, a small cut, and they immediately jump to, oh, I got a sliver once too, and my mom put a Band-Aid on it. And, you know, in adults, we <laughs> that's not really the response we're looking for or in older children. But in young children, that sharing stories and connecting and saying, oh, there's a time when I felt that too, and I can relate to you and empathize with you in this moment, that that's actually a really appropriate response in children. And then probably the most exciting finding from my research is that often children share empathy in nonverbal ways. And as teachers or as adults in their lives, we really actually do children a disservice when we force them to verbalize something. Because what we really want them to have is this felt sense of feeling with someone. And that there are so many ways that children can do that. I don't know if folks are familiar with the Reggio Emilia poem about the hundred languages of children. They talk about hundred ways of thinking and playing and moving. And I really think from my research that there's hundreds of ways that children share empathy and that they can do that through their bodies, through the vibes, the secret languages that they have with each other. And we really want to support that connection and that expression and recognize that it doesn't always have to be verbal, that it can be simple presence. Often observe children who just see a friend who might be having something up with them, a big feeling, and they just simply go and sit near them or offer a hug or offer a hand up or use their play and adapt their play scheme in really interesting ways to invite other children in, in ways that teachers might not be able to support a child in that moment, that children's understanding of each other is actually sometimes beyond what we can offer support as adults. And so recognizing that and affirming that is really important. In your research, did you ever notice trends in terms of, you could call them blind spots that educators Mm -hmm. and adults sometimes miss? Maybe it's certain nonverbal activities or behaviors. Is there anything that you would suggest that we look particularly for that maybe has gone under the radar for a lot of people? I think really it's an orientation of looking and of observing. And Mm. as an educator stepping back, that's really the primary strategy that came through in this research in terms of supporting children is that as educators, of course, we're creating the container of safety and community and trust and equipping children with skills but we really don't want to be the ones always responding. We want to equip children to respond to each other. And so as much as we can be actually stepping back, that's the language that a lot of the teachers that I've worked with use, stepping back and observing and allowing children to step forward and respond to each other, that that's actually what's most impactful. And that's a really challenging thing to do as an empathetic teacher. You see a child in need And you want to rush to them. Mm -hmm. And it's really asking us to check ourselves and think, 
is this child really injured? Because of course, then you should go to them right away. No one's saying you shouldn't do that. Of course. But if you know that they're okay, that was just a little stumble or they're not bleeding, they don't need really immediate medical attention to allow other children to step forward and care for their friend. And you can calmly and be really self-regulated and grounded and then come over. And the first thing to really do is say, wow, I see your friends came right over. They were really worried about you. How are you feeling now? How can I support you? What help do you need from me? And so I think that question you're asking is such a great question of what do teachers miss? They just miss the moment to step back and to really believe in children's capacity to support each other, that that is really the biggest gift that we can give them is knowing that they're capable of sharing empathy and the confidence and the self-satisfaction that they feel when they get to do that, because then they're a part of this community. They have something to offer as well as to receive. It sounds a bit like helping a child ride their bike Mm -hmm. and not holding their hand excessively, making sure that they don't injure themselves severely, but letting them kind of wobble and figure things out and help each other out. Is that a fair analogy? That's a great analogy. And I also think about risky play in nature. That's such a big part of this work of being outside is supporting children's healthy risk taking. And that's emotional, too, that we can support them in risks of not just, you know, how high can I climb, but how can I respond to a peer who needs support, how to think of themselves. One teacher I work with, the language that she uses is helpers and healers at helping the children to think of themselves in that way. And nature, of course, is just such a wonderful context for all kinds of learning. What are some of the bigger opportunities that you see when it comes to nurturing that empathy in a natural setting? Absolutely. One of the teachers included in my research described it as her observation is really that nature is the first place where children's empathy kind of emerges. They're able to understand impact in a different way that is much more authentic and concrete. So if you pull a plant up, that plant can't grow anymore. And that's the kind of immediate and really concrete thinking that's very appropriate for that age group. And so nature, as we know from affordance theory, nature provides so many affordances for children's development in a whole host of ways. But in terms of empathy, really helping them see that you have an impact And that really matters. And that helps children to understand that you can contribute something positive. And then like I touched on a little while ago about children's questions about the animals that they're beginning to create relationships with and the ways that they care for them and really wanting to act and to be able to support them and seeing themselves as part of this forest community or this wider web of life. And then something really interesting that I found through my research is that time in nature inevitably involves encounters with the circle of life. And that can be a profound experience for very young children that I think as adults, it's our first instinct to say, we want to protect you from that. And you're not ready to deal with that. We don't want you to feel those bad, in air quotes, feelings. And instead, when we can follow children's curiosity and their concern in those interactions, like the story that came up most frequently was encounters with dead squirrels. 
that the children really were just done with whatever the activity of the day was. If they were on a hike, it was really, they weren't moving on. They wanted to sit and be with the squirrel and understand what might have happened. Again, those questions coming out. And then figure out, like, how do we honor this life in this moment? Can we bury it? What is the right next step to honor this being that has died? And I think that it is so challenging as an adult to be willing to follow their lead in that moment, but to trust the container that you've built of safety and community and connection and trust that we can move through these hard things. And when we do that, we show children that this isn't something that they have to be scared of. We're not putting our adult ideas about death onto them, but able to experience the wholeness of nature and that that's a reality that we're going to encounter. And so the the educators that I've worked with who are able to really embrace that the ways that they've seen that that is really powerful and ultimately really positive for children. Yeah. I mean, nature is all things. Yeah. It's all emotions. It's all parts of the circle of life, life, death, regeneration. We can't hide away from any one part of it, whether it's birth, growth, death. It's just, it is period. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, it's Ian. You might already know about our book, Teaching About Invasive Species. For those who don't, it's a collection of perspectives, programs, and hands-on activities geared toward outdoor and environmental educators. Visit greenteacher.com to order your copy. When you started your community of practice, you decided to take a two-worlds approach. Let's kind of break this down. We'll start with what the two-worlds approach entails and then go into the why of why you adopted that two worlds approach? Sure. So the two worlds approach really takes Western knowledge and indigenous knowledge and centers each of them in their own integrity. So the idea is that we're really working against the Western notion to assimilate, to pull the best pieces of indigenous knowledge and kind of have a domination impact of that learning and that perspective. And so it was really important to us that we utilized a theoretical framework that would really ground us in centering and respecting Indigenous knowledge and found the two worlds approach to be a really profound way to do that. And something that is at the heart of that approach is seeing learning from an Indigenous perspective as something that comes from the heart and that's something that comes through story and through authentic sharing. And so really wanted to ground our community of practice in that affirmation of learning as a holistic embodied experience. And you drew heavily on the Natural Curiosity book, which of course we've featured in other episodes and we've collaborated a lot with Natural Curiosity. Yeah. What were the aspects of that book? And it's more than just a book. I mean, it's a whole educational framework. What pieces really resonated with your work and research? Yes, we really focused our work on the indigenous branches that accompany each section of the text yep. and just found those to be really rich. So really, again, that emphasis on learning as something that comes from the heart, learning that comes from inside out, and that seeing knowledge as an active process. So the community of practice, we really wanted to kind of deconstruct what we know about empathy from a Western perspective 
and then through deep engagement and listening with Indigenous peoples and perspectives to reconstruct how we think about empathy. And so that knowledge as an active process of co-creation was really impactful for our community of practice. And then there's just so much great wisdom about deep listening and respect and this affirmation of the child as completely capable of connecting with the natural world, that that, from an Indigenous perspective, is the natural state of human being. And so seeing children as capable of connection and of empathy was really powerful. So much of that text really shaped the model of empathy that we eventually co-created together, ideas of reciprocity, that everything is related, that we are in deep connection and relationship with the world, with the earth, that we are of the earth, that that just really deepened our group's engagement with this work. Yeah, I mean, I just use it as the foundation for all teaching and learning that I do. It's, mm. it's step one, absolutely. Getting into the nitty-gritty in facilitating the community of practice, what did that look like from a sort of step-by-step -step perspective? I first want to start by acknowledging my co-facilitator, Thelma Nikwanibi, who is an Anishinaabe elder from the Lakuta tribe. We had been in deep conversation and relationship with her for the whole development and implementation of this project. And she has worked in early childhood her whole life and is a brilliant educator and so we worked together to figure out how are we going to make this a really authentic learning experience and something that, you know, these teachers that were a part of our community of practice, they teach young children all day, and then they come to an evening gathering to engage in this work. And how do we both really honor that time and commitment and really do something meaningful together? And so we shaped the community of practice around a lot of Indigenous traditions and practices. So we began every session with shared meal together as a way of offering and nourishing our bodies and preparing for the time together. We had a land acknowledgement that was offered by a different participant each time as a way to share different practices. We also had folks share the land acknowledgements that they do with young children, which was a really fun way to see how this work can be done at a very young age in a developmentally appropriate way. Then the time was used in storytelling and small and large group discussion, reflection and journaling. And we used this other text that Thelma is a co-author of, The Spirit of the Ojibwe, that is just these stunning portraits and biographies of elders from Thelma's tribe. And so we assigned and kind of a jigsaw style, if teachers are familiar with that, <laughs> yes. different elder portraits to different participants. And then they shared with each other. And to watch that exchange, it was so profoundly moving. The responsibility that the teachers, our participants felt to share someone's story with the rest of their group was really rich. And for Indigenous participants to see their culture and their stories reflected so that was a really wonderful pairing using the spirit of the Ojibwe, since this is the tribes and the people from our land. It's really important. I guess we haven't said it directly yet that this work was conducted in Duluth, Minnesota. And so that was a really important foundation to have in addition to natural curiosity, which is based in Canada and also on Anishinaabe land and a lot of connections. But 
knowing how important the oral tradition of Indigenous cultures are, we knew that just having text didn't feel appropriate to us and didn't feel appropriate to Thelma. And so she invited four speakers to come and to share their story. And I think this piece is really important because when she invited them, she wasn't saying, come talk about empathy. She was saying, please come and share whatever is on your heart, share your story, because it didn't feel right to give them an agenda or give them questions to just really what was authentic was to listen to what they had to share. And that created this really special space where what we were asking the participants to do was to make connections between the natural curiosity text and what our guest speaker had to say and their own experiences with the children that they were working with and to make connections and to reflect. And so what emerged from that space was just these incredible circles of really deep listening and honoring people's stories. And then the experience of the speaker to feel really held in that circle of trust. And so it was this really beautiful act of sharing that then was acknowledged by all of the participants were asked and welcome to bring a gift to offer to the guest speaker in the tradition of Indigenous gift giving to acknowledge that reciprocal exchange and to honor what they had shared. And how the participants took that and ran with it was just so incredible. They brought these beautiful handmade gifts of bread they had baked or maple syrup they had tapped with the children or just these incredible homemade jams, just everything you can imagine of the gifts of the earth that were special to them and their place and their family. And then we're able to offer it to our speaker and that they were just blown away on both sides, the richness of sharing. And so that, I mean, I know this is, <laughs> this is a lot of um, the process. But this is very inspiring. Okay, good. Um, and so after that, just really rich exchange of story and gifts, there would be time for reflection and small and large group discussions and sharing out the connections that we were making. And so we would take the written reflections and you know, the flip chart notes, and sometimes there would be drawing, we would record every session. And then I would transcribe it all and look through and pull the pieces out. And so along the way, each session, we were building this empathy narrative and model. And I would bring the reflections from the last session to the next session. And in addition to whatever we were working on that day, they would review and revise and continue to build. So it was this really rich, iterative process of back and forth exchange. And what I'm probably most proud of is that there was this real sense of co-creation and co-ownership. There was never this idea that our planning team was somehow writing this on our own or reading this in a way that wasn't really authentically shared. And that has been really meaningful. This to really authentically co-create knowledge, I think is incredibly difficult. And I'm really proud of the ways that we navigated continuing to build on what we had learned and to shift when we got you know seven months in and someone was saying that doesn't really feel right anymore to say great what does it feel like now and to see our learning evolve over that time it really a gem that we come back to from natural curiosity often is that knowledge flows without end oh yes and that that really feels like the heart of this work and that knowledge can't be owned so as i'm sharing this today this is not my work 
in any way, this is our work and that it's, I mean, could go on and on that it's the work of this community of people, but also of the land and how deeply it was shaped by place. For sure. This almost seems like an unfair question because there's so much to unpack, but what, if you had to describe in a somewhat succinct way, what does this empathy model look like at present, keeping in mind that this is an evolving organism, as you just mentioned? That's a great question. We have a little graphic that I could share and that you could include in the show notes if that feels appealing. Absolutely. So the model, the words that came were that all relatives share empathy. And so the piece we really were honing in on is that empathy is reciprocal. It's something that is exchanged, that at at different points in our life, we need to receive it. At other times, we're really primed to offer it. And so the model, I think the best way to explain it is through the visual, because it really is an attempt at tying all of these pieces together is kind of along the top, there's the cycle of the moon to represent that we're always in different places on our empathy journey. Sometimes we're offering empathy really brightly. Sometimes we're in a waning place where we really need empathy ourselves. And then kind of the core of this model is that all relatives share empathy. We're all in an empathy cycle that's really acknowledging that humans are not the center of this. And that feels very reflective of the Indigenous worldview. And so it's set, our work is set on the North Shore. So there is a ribbon of Lake Superior and rocks and pine trees. And that there, there's a teacher and a child sharing empathy together. There's an elder looking on, offer their, offering their insight and wisdom. And then two children are sharing empathy with the earth. So it really just comes back to this idea that empathy is the way of life of the teacher, that there's always modeling, that that really is at the heart of the work, and that empathy is something that we can all contribute to. And I think something that was a rich conversation from one of our first sessions was this debate about is empathy active? And what we landed on is that empathy is active, but it doesn't always mean action. Mm -hmm. And that sometimes we feel this rush to fix, to solve something for someone who is hurting. And again, that's a really normal impulse. But that what we found through our own experiences and through working with children was that instead, often all we need is someone to listen and to really be with us. And so really defining empathy as presence, and that there is something active in that, but that it's not always an action to solve something, but that instead, the humility and the vulnerability to be present with someone is often what is most needed. Yeah, oh, for sure. And I think everybody can relate to that, even if the presence comes from sitting with a campfire. You hear that often from people who are out doing solo camping trips. Absolutely. Is that the campfire is their company Mm. and it's everything to them. Absolutely. That there is so much more to say about that, that that, (laughs) that nature is our teacher and empathy and that we have so much that we can learn and seeing being fed and sourced by nature as a source of empathy and then really core in what we've learned from the indigenous perspective is that reciprocity means anytime we take something or offered something of giving back. And so seeing 
ourselves in that active relationship with the whole web of life. And that that in doing that, in offering empathy in that way, offering empathy to children in that way, we are really able to become a safe and steady presence for them. And that allows children's empathy to flourish and to know that they're held and loved by a wider community of humans and the more than human world. Yes. Green Teacher's main office is located on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga peoples. This territory is covered by the Williams Treaty. Have you received any educator feedback yet? I know it's early days, but even anecdotes of just how the implementation of this model has been working in practice. Yes. So we have a few stories that were shared at our last gathering of how this work is kind of rippling out. And one theme that has been really exciting is that it seems as though what we've learned together is really supporting and empowering teachers' intuitions. So things that like never quite sat right with them or they weren't quite sure how to address with children through this learning felt empowered of, no, I need to listen to that inner voice and can find a way to do this that feels authentic. So one example is in Duluth, Minnesota in the, in the winter, everything is quiet in the forest. You know, there's not a lot, there's no leaves, everything's buried in snow. And so it's really easy for the children to be quite loud and to really take up space in the forest. And during that time, that's really okay. But then as soon as the leaves start to reappear and the birds come back, this one teacher was noticing that she felt kind of agitated. It was becoming frustrating, the volume of the children compared to what was returning to the forest. And so she started to introduce this to the children and reminding them that this is not their forest, that we share this space and that the birds have their own work to do. And need to communicate with each other and that we can't be at a volume where they can't be doing their work and playing their role in the forest community. And so the children started to kind of take that in and the other co-teachers started to share that. And so they tell the story of one day they're in the white pine forest playing and the children were so excited to be there at this play camp where they hadn't been for a while. And their teacher brought everyone together and said, I can't hear the oven bird anymore. And when it's here, it's calling out teacher, teacher, teacher. And I love to hear it because it's singing my work and now we can't hear it. And so the children got quieter and quieter and quieter. And then they could hear the call again. And so that experience of feeling like, how are we being in relationship in this reciprocal relationship and cycle with the places that we do this work And following the intuition and then being able to do that in an authentic way that wasn't shaming, that wasn't telling the children to be quiet for no reason, that wasn't restricting their play in an unnecessary way, but was acknowledging that we are part of something bigger. And I think that this is a really interesting place of discovery for our field for doing outdoor education is so often it's a child-led approach and there's so much that's beautiful and really right about that. And I'm really curious about how as we 
as a field deepen engagement and understanding of indigenous perspectives, how might that shift so that it's not the child at the center, but seeing the child as part of a wider community of our earth community and how might that shift our teaching practices? And I think this is one example of what that might look like. Yes. And you got me all excited thinking about oven birds. And for those who <laughs> are, are listening, maybe in other parts of the world where oven birds don't live, it's a very small wood warbler that migrates from its wintering territory in tropical America and then nests right across the North Woods, like quite a broad swath of land in mainly mixed forests. And yes, indeed, it does sound like it is saying, teacher, 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 teacher. And it's, it's just one of my absolute favorite sounds in the whole world. Very honestly, I love oven Aww. birds. Yeah. So thank you for that. <laughs> yes, thank you. Yeah, another example is teaching the honorable harvest, yes. which I don't think I can fully do justice to the story. But another teacher was changing her approach to that and really asking and modeling for the children and helping them to really ask questions of the plants that they were wanting to pick. And really listen for the answer. And she talked about how that is one of the places in her work that is most, I don't know if she would agree with that statement, painful or is a tension. It's just hard mm -hmm. as someone who loves the earth to see children who sometimes they just want to pick and pick and pick and pick flowers and share them with their families. And sure. that is, you know. It doesn't mean it's coming from a bad place. It does seem like it's kind of an instinct of childhood. And then how to shift their thinking to something that is more in alignment with the honorable harvest. And so it tells this beautiful story of asking questions about, well, what is this plant's role in the forest community? And has it done its job yet? And so if the apple tree hasn't blossomed and had its fruit, well, we can't pick it yet and this evolution of asking these questions and instead of kind of a traditional like well if there's 10 you can pick one and then how seeing how children well they picked one so I get to pick one how that kind of devolved to instead instill again this really felt sense of connection to the natural world and to actually listen for the response and so she tells the story of the day when the the children go to pick a dandelion and she watched them kind of stop and like look around and pause for a moment and then shake their head and keep going. And how that was a huge day of celebration for her that they didn't pick the dandelion and she had hoped that they had really asked and then listened and knew that it, whatever they had heard was saying, no, not today. Yeah. And I love that idea of sort of working with, the children as opposed to just this very top down don't do this don't do that yes. it's just engaging them in the discussion yes. and getting their input and allowing them to make the decision yes allowing them to make the decision i think is the like the key points there that she was really posing questions and then it was the children deciding no not yet you know should you pick a dandelion before it blossoms no and instead of how much richer, more powerful, more impactful that is for the child to have that realization on their own instead of coming in a top-down way from a teacher. Yeah, I love that. Well, next steps. Where do we go next with the community of practice? As we talked about, this is ever-evolving. So yes. what does the future hold? 
Yes, I'm very excited. I actually have moved from Duluth and now I'm based in Ohio doing doctoral work. So I'm not directly involved in the same way, but I'm just absolutely thrilled that there was this really authentic desire from the teachers to continue our work together. And the theme that came through that had been kind of percolating in this community throughout the whole community of practice and even before was that really the question of how do we connect children with stolen land? And what does that look like? And empathy has been such an amazing, rich grounding, and I think a preparation for that work. So the next phase of the community of practice is really looking at what does reconciliation mean in outdoor education? And how do we connect children with land that is not ours? And so that's what they're working on this year. A big theme that came out from the empathy work was the impact of historical trauma. And so it felt really important to do that work together as a community to benefit all children and to understand how can we support their connection to the earth. And so that's what they're working on next for the community of practice this school year. That's actively happening now. And then we've also received funding to look at the kind of ripple effects that the community of practice on empathy is having in their teaching practices. The community of practice experience was so profound. And we think that it is really the pairing of the community of practice and the two worlds approach fit really nicely together. And so we want to do some more evaluation so that we can share and understand what about that approach is effective and offer that as a capacity building tool for the wider field. That's great. And you'll have to keep us posted just as more feedback and more results come in. Yes, absolutely. Well, any final thoughts, advice, or something that you would like to leave our listeners with? I think one piece that came through this research is that teaching is such an art and to trust your intuition as much as possible, even in so many contexts where that is not supported. But the authentic nature of this work that each of the schools that I've studied are so rich and different and that the intention of offering this work more broadly is not to replicate it, but to offer inspiration and connection so that you can do this work in your own place. And I think especially in early childhood, but also education at any level can be very isolating and it can feel very lonely. And so one of the pieces we left our community of practice with was we decorated bandanas for folks to wear when they're out in the field as a physical reminder of our connection to each other and to drawing on each other's strength and wisdom and insight in our own unique teaching practices even when we're not together. So just offering gratitude for everyone who does this work and affirmation for the impact that you're making and greetings from Duluth that you are not alone and we're grateful to be in the empathy cycle with you. Yes, and I'm very grateful to be in the empathy cycle with you. That was maybe a bit cheesy, but (laughs) hey, why not? We really appreciate your time and insights and we hope to continue to hear more about this as it unfolds. Thanks so much, Ian. Claire will be sharing more of her wisdom in an upcoming webinar titled Breathing with the World, Deepening Empathy Through Engagement with Indigenous Perspectives. 
visit naturalcuriosity.ca slash webinars to register and to learn more about Natural Curiosity's four-branch framework of children's environmental inquiry. Talking with Green Teachers is co-hosted by Ian Shanahan and me, Sofia Vargasnesi. Ian is the show's writer and editor. Logo design is by Devin Terrien. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes to get instant access to each new episode. If you really like the show, give us a rating too. We can also be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us in this episode. We'll chat again soon. fantastic and yes as i say you got me very excited about ovenbird it is just it's the anthem of the summer i mean i just love it yeah and i love how it gets like gradually louder as like from the start of the song to the you know the end of the song yeah